guys that you know stay super late hearing a french guy ramble for hours about a dead game because they have a super nice podcast <laughs> well, i don't know who those guys are but they sound like jerks all right so super excited to have greg back with us he was here previously to talk about dust um if you have not checked out that episode Definitely do so before or after this one. Um, for those of you who don't know, Greg used to work for Rackham, which made AT43 as well as Confrontation. Uh, he is currently running Dust USA, which um, is in charge of the USA distribution and um, of Dust 1947. He currently has a campaign running with the Bolter Club. And if you're interested in joining in on that, you can always check out the Bolter Club or Dust USA on Facebook uh, Facebook group, I'm assuming. <laughs> Facebook page, yeah. Instagram, yeah. the socials. So some form yes. of social media. You'll, you, you'll, find, you'll find where you want to be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Greg, uh, Greg and I have actually been uh, talking quite a bit about AT43, as well as a bunch of other uh, cool guys in a Facebook chat that's going on. It seems to be having a little bit of a revival. So we're definitely really excited to have Greg here to talk about AT43. I'm super psyched to be here. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Greg. Actually, I was a little unclear. What was your role at uh, at Rackham? Um, so at Rackham, I started at the mail order service as the assistant of the manager. And then I became the sales rep for every English-speaking country. So oh, was basically, so it was USA mainly, uh, Canada, uh, England, well, UK, I should say, and uh, Ireland, and uh, Australia, New Zealand. Wow. So, yeah, it, it made for fun days where I had to arrive at work at seven in the morning to be able to catch the end of day in Australia. And then I would have to leave around nine at night to be able to catch the, the United States in the morning. So, Dang. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> so if, if i buy some uh new inbox rackham stuff off ebay and there's a mispack i i should reach out to you you should um <laughs> this, this is the moment where i'm gonna have a, a very explicit word for you <laughs> uh no uh, no 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 even at that time i think that uh, people were supposed to go to their to the distributor directly so it was acd for a while uh, that had an exclusive agreement and then we opened to others, and then FFG took the relay mm-hmm. uh, and had a, another exclusive agreement. So at a point, it was FFG that was dealing with all that. So fun times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of models, um, we normally just do a quick hobby update. Greg, what have you been painting these days? Um, I, I've been reminiscing on the painting sessions that I have on Sundays with uh, with some friends, uh, including Adam, that you that you know, Chris. Uh, but um, lately, it was mainly Legion uh, that I was painting. Uh, I was finishing, well, finishing, no, starting some Rebels because it was pretty fun. Uh, but right now, I have a project to actually repaint some Therian for AT43. Nice. Um, with, uh, using some Turbodorks paints because I'm completely in love with those. So, so I'm, I'm going to try and do something like that, I think. But I have so many things that I would like to paint. <laughs> awesome. Don't we all? Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Chris, what about you? Interestingly enough, um, I am also finishing up uh, cranking out some Legion. I got in uh, during the 
May the 4th sale picked up some Super Battle Droids, Commander Rex, and the Arc Trooper box. So I've been working on those things um, and also planning on playing with some Turbo Dork paints, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. mainly for some Battletech models. I'm just waiting for some um, 3D printed uh, walls to come in for Aristea by uh, Corvus Belly, um, because I'm also planning on doing those in color shift, and I don't like cleaning my airbrush, so I try to do all of my Turbo Dork stuff in, like, in a day. Um, so I think that's going to be planned for this weekend. Nice. Um, so I'm psyched for that. Uh, I, I, I really, really like the new Xenoshift colors. Oh, yeah. Because they do a lot of really funky things depending on where you put the white. So you can actually paint, like, patterns in if you paint in patterns with black and white onto a flat surface and you put the Xena shift on top of it it actually picks up the pattern underneath as opposed to just doing like a straight zenithal where it would just pick up kind of like those edges and kind of like shadows it's it's a really interesting the more you kind of play with it and and do weird things that i don't think the product was intended to be doing but it, it works out really cool how about you owen um, so I've actually got some conquest on my painting table. Uh, it's the Spire, which is a faction I love because they remind me a ton of both the Alchemist of Durs from Confrontation and the Therians from 1843. So, uh, scratching, scratching that itch. Uh, <laughs> I've actually been playing around with some speed painting tricks. So I picked up some new dry brushes from a company called Artist Opus. I've really been liking those and kind of their approach to that. It's, uh... A nice, uh, slightly different version of airbrushing. Uh, it's a little bit less cleanup, which I do like, and it also lets you get some textures in places that uh, an airbrush maybe would not get you textures. So I've just been enjoying playing with that. And then in addition to that, I've also been playing with some oil washes, as well as um, a product uh, from AK Interactive, which is an enamel wash, uh, Streaking Grime. Those are somewhat similar, different in meaningful ways, but uh, they're tools in the toolbox for speed painting that I've just been playing around with. And then uh, beyond that, I finished up some of my mercs. I actually got a second crew in the uh, CCC, so I'm going to probably try to bang those out in another you know two, three-hour session, just get them all done for tabletop, and uh, that'll be that. So uh, being being much more productive than my normal self is with the, uh, the painting here. So let's transition over to the main topic, which is uh, a little old game called AT43. So I'll give the usual wiki-style summary, and then we'll pass it over to Greg for some of the background. AT43 was a pulp sci-fi tabletop war game developed by the team at Rackham, but principally driven by Paolo Parente. Yeah, this was a his uh, universe, his creation to a large extent. The game was released by Rackham in 2006. The game's really notable uh, notable for its artwork. It's very, very strong. Paolo Parente has a great style. It also is probably most notable for its pre-painted plastic miniatures, which were really outstanding and, and today, to my mind, really set the bar for uh, what can be done for affordable pre-painted plastic. The game was played using something between 20 and 30, and I'll put an asterisk on that. It really depends on what type of army you play. Mostly walkers, that can be much, much lower. You have nothing but infantry, that can be much, much higher. Twenty or One uh, to 48 scale miniatures, not, not 28 millimeters miniatures. Per player, you use the metric system to measure and uh, use D6s to resolve the rolls. Did I miss anything there, Greg? 
Oh, no, no, it's pretty good. <laughs> okay. So we, we have an expert on AT43 with us. So, Greg, could you uh, walk us through the uh, the background for AT43 in terms of the in-game universe? So the, the universe for AT43 is uh, obviously a futuristic universe. You are very far ahead in the future. You are basically introduced to a, a confederation of planets called uh, the United Nations of Ava. Uh, Ava is the, the original planet where these humanoid people are living. They're really close to humans, basically. Uh, they are humans, they, uh, except they are not living on Earth. They have uh, this confederation of planets, and at a point in their history, there's a, this giant separation between two blocks, uh, genuinely, because the, the second block is uh, the red block, uh, which is a um, very very deeply inspired by uh, co the communist uh, re regimes uh, that we've known on our planet. And so you have this conflict that happens between these two nations, basically, uh, Ava and the UNA, the United Nations of Ava, and Aedes, uh, the planet of the Red Bloc. And then at a point, uh, 12 years later, suddenly a, a third nation appears out of nowhere uh, in the middle of the universe, uh, the Therians, and they are these robotic beings uh, that are basically hell-bent into uh, destroying life as it is on Ava and Aedes and all the colonies to rebuild the planets and the stars uh, under their binary thoughts. Uh, so everything needs to be basically completely remodeled, and they have entire planet ships that float in the universe in order to, I would say terraform, but that would be an abuse of the, of the word, but uh, to terraform basically the other planets. At the same time, it's not really an abuse of the term because the Ethereans are actually humans, but they are the humans from Earth, and they are the humans from Earth that have evolved a bazillion years ago. So they have removed any need for a body, basically. They are now these digital sentient beings that uh, float around on their local internet, basically called Emigrid, and they are able to process things super fast, obviously. And when they need to fight, they transport their mind into these robotic beings that are, that are the theorems. So that was really the, the nice twist of this universe. There is another faction called the Carmens. Uh, the Carmens are actually the uh, basically a clever gorillas. Uh, that have reached a level of wisdom that even human beings are still dreaming of. The Carmens have been created by the Therians uh, again a million years ago, and they have served as slaves for the Therians until they reached this level of consciousness that allowed them to free themselves from the Therians. You also have the Cogs, uh, another faction in the universe. I would say it's the little gray guys of the of 8043, except they are giant. Uh, there is a, a a Chinese production story behind it, but <laughs> I, I will reserve that for later. But they are giant little gray guys uh, that are specialists of cloning and have managed to remove basically any need for individual conscious because they can recreate themselves so much that you, their leaders, for example, are not characters like in the other armies. They are just generic guys, uh, mm -hmm. but, they, but you can reproduce them as much as you want. So it's really funny. Uh, of course, they have a level of technology that is very advanced, and they are very jealous of this level of technology. 
And finally, you have another faction that is called uh, Oni. Uh, so this is the the Mercs, basically, of the universe of 8043. Uh, it's a giant corporation that became so powerful that they became their own political system and they sell their services to, to anyone who is able to pay. Uh, and sometimes they do their own beating because they have also their own agenda that is very mysterious and nefarious. Well, you know, sometimes you just need to go get some more zombie fodder and... Uh, exactly. <laughs> so just for people that don't know, uh, AT43 is actually an acronym, right? Uh, it stands for After Trauma Year 43? Exactly, because uh, the trauma is the, the moment where the, the Therians uh, appeared in the orbit of Eva and uh, started some machines that had been that had been buried on Eva so many years ago that the the people of Eva thought it was a relic of an older civilization. And these machines are actually the machines that they need in order to terraform uh, the the planets. The starting of these machines created a giant cataclysm on the planetary level that killed billions of people on the planet. And that's what the trauma is. So after that, uh, basically in the universe of 8043, everything is measured before trauma and after trauma. So for example, the the Edean revolution, which is the, the revolution uh, that created the red block, happens in BT12, which is before trauma, 12 years before the trauma. <laughs> and in 8043, where we are right now, uh, when the game appears, uh, you start Operation Dam Damocles, which is, Damocles is the name that Ava, the United Nations of Ava, have given to the planets of the Therian. And they are trying to invade that planet in order to stop the machines. Right on. So it sounds like this is a pretty deep universe. This is not just a, uh, here's some pre-painted miniatures, uh, monkeys in power armor. Like, <laughs> it, it, it seems like there, there was a lot of love put into this. There, there was a, a lot of there's a lot of work um, at that time in at Rackham. The, the guys that were working on on the rules and the universe of the game were all issue, coming from RPG basically, and so they were developing universe in a very deep manner automatically. They had this reflex all the time. So yeah, they really developed a, a universe that was very rich and had a lot of potential. Right on. Well, speaking of rules, Chris, you, we could go through the rule book you know, head to cover, but that would probably be a really long episode and not the most fun to listen to. <laughs> From a high level, um, what would you say some of the standout features of the AT-43 rule set are? So starting out with how you build your army, uh, which is the platoon system, a lot of people who are familiar with Dust are going to be kind of familiar with the idea where um, you're looking at a card or, you know, a rulebook page, where essentially it lays out, here's the what you need to have in this platoon here are options for you to have in this platoon here are the benefits and sometimes here are the cons as well the biggest difference between at43's army building system and dust's system is that in dust you can play without platoons or you can just kind of shoehorn something in um at43 you are building strictly two platoons where you can't just be like ah you know what i'm just going to take nothing but three star infantry and this is just what i want to do you have to find the platoon that's going to hopefully give you the ability to do that. It also used a uh, LP system. LP being uh, similar to command points. You would use them to trigger special abilities in-game. You could also wager your LP to help win your role um, to be the active player in a turn. This, this, to me, was very similar to Eden, which we've talked about before. 
where uh, Eden using your um, SP, I believe it was, uh, would give you the ability mm -hmm. to wager to go towards you uh, who's taking first turn. Um, and also to trigger abilities in game. This is a very similar system that was, you know, did it first. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll add one point of filigree on this too, because I think it's easy to miss. So LP are used for a couple of things. So you can trigger special abilities, which to your point, yeah, totally like Eden. Uh, the wager system was also a bit unique and also somewhat like Eden. If you had a unit that didn't have a officer, you also had to spend one LP to actually make that unit do anything when activated. So if you could snipe out officers, or if you built an army that didn't have many officers, that was actually a detriment to how much other fun, special stuff you could do. So it, it was a really interesting little resource mechanic. And lastly, there was the uh, Universal Resolution System, which was a single chart which determined how difficult it was for your, you know, usually attacks to hit an opponent's models. Um, you would look at the chart to see what you need to roll on your die. It's pretty simple chart. You know, it's it wasn't like any of the super complicated, like 40k charts from back in the day that required multiple <laughs> things. It was um, a very simple chart with just a couple of bands going across. People, we can probably put a link to that in our show notes, um, and just just to see it because it is it is very very user friendly. Oh um, yeah, I think which uh, which you know kind of set it apart, especially for the time that the game came out. Yeah, and and do you want to give like an example of how someone might figure out where they they have to roll on the chart? And I wish I had it in front of me. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, for, for example, it's very uh, very simple. You have a if you have a weapon, for example, that has a range of eight and you're trying to hit someone that is at range 10 of you, it was not a, a failure. It was just harder to hit. Basically, the, the principle was that weapons could hit so far away that you could always hit something, but it was harder because they were further. So if they were at range 10 and you had a, a weapon with range 8, uh, 10 minus 8 was 2, and the difference of 2 meant that uh, on the universal table of resolution, you would hit only on a 5+. plus. Mm -hmm. So you would roll as many dice as your weapon would tell you, and on each five, you would have a hit. We should probably explain to, to listeners, too, that are totally unfamiliar with this. Um, in terms of, of ranges in the game, the system was set up so for every 10 centimeters away, that was one range unit. So if you were 100 centimeters away or 40 inches away, again, but, but I, I think a lot of our listeners are in the U.S., so just try to simplify that for them. Um, yeah. that, that, that's how you'd figure that out. Yep, exactly. The, the tape measure for 8043 actually had uh, centimeters on one side and inches so that you could play it wherever. Mm -hmm. But the other side had the generic uh, ranges so that you could just measure with that, just with the ranges, without having to bother with inches or centimeters. It's all just made up anyway. I mean... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> pew, pew. And lastly, uh, <laughs> there was also variable unit sizes. I should say for some of the units, certain units were set in the um, size that they could be taken in. Mm -hmm. So typically, as you um, moved up to a larger size unit um, for your troops, you'd actually have the ability to take additional specialist options in in your unit, which was a pretty neat concept at the time. So, you know, just taking uh, like uh, the Carmens, for example, and uh, Captars, you know, you could add in, say, like a grenade launcher. If you had the minimum unit size, if you have the maximum unit size, 
you can actually add in two grenade launchers and I believe an engineer as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the ability to kind of customize your squads a little bit bigger as the unit grows, um, which gives you a couple of different uh, ways to kind of build your army. Um, and it gives you a lot more flexibility. Very true. Yeah, you know, one one thing that was a little unique about the system was when you were making range shots, how that was done. And I didn't include it in the show notes, so I, I, just tacking it on here, you would pick a unit you were going to shoot at, and infantry didn't block line of sight. So let's say you have a unit behind another unit. You could say, I'm targeting the unit behind the, the unit in between, and make your shots, you'd then basically have the potential to hit anything in between those two units. So in this case, it'd just be, you know, one unit and the one behind it. You'd roll your hits, and then you'd assign the hits first to the unit in front of you, and then to the unit behind you. So you could do some cute things with that. There was a order you could give, um, you know, go to your knees that would say, okay, I ignore me for, you know, zone of fire effects. Lots of kind of interesting ways to... Uh, apply the the shooting system that was just a little bit different than i i think what was standard for the market at the time which was just you know i think 40k mostly war machine was starting to, to grow at the time but for sci-fi games it was pretty much 40k left in the market at that point yeah anything else um you would highlight greg oh no i think you you've rounded uh, rounded up the rules pretty well uh, the game was really meant to be lethal for example heroes don't have uh, health points mm -hmm. so if they get shot they die uh, but at the same time, they are extremely powerful and they have mechanisms that protect them when they are inside a unit. So it was really a matter of basically, um, as as the community manager of Rakam used to say at that time, uh, it's uh, a matter of piling Lego bricks together uh, <laughs> so, that, so that makes a nice house. But you can shape your house the way you want, but it's still Lego bricks. So the, the construction of the army... The army building, the the the, ma the management of your army was extremely easy. That too, um, going off that, there was really only two different types of models um, when you look at it from a kind of broader perspective. In that you had your vehicles and you had troops. Um, yep. There, it didn't like it didn't make it into a lot of like there wasn't. Oh, you have light infantry, heavy infantry, medium infantry. You have tanks and jet bikes and this and that. But like overall, vehicles function like vehicles there's specific rules involved with them and troops function like troops no matter what kind of variety you might have um, which yes. is pretty interesting to look at because it simplifies the the rules to make playing on the tabletop a little bit easier even when you have completely different forces opposing each other you know like you you have really intelligent you know mutant apes with space technology fighting humans with uh, space technology and they could have completely different things on the you know you might have some monkeys riding a flying tricycle with a machine gun the UNAC might have a just very large almost walker type armored vehicle they both are governed by the same rules regarding like hit points and firing and things like that so it's not like you needed a di knowledge of well how does a flyer work compared to how does a, a walker work compared to how does like a crazy theory and machine work you know if you understood the basic rules you kind of understand how how just vehicles work period true yeah i mean so just on a personal note this is one of the games that I first got into when I, I came back to wargaming in my 20s. I, I'd come in with War Machine, but I joined a club in southern Massachusetts that had a lot of people that enjoyed Rackham games. And AT43 had just come out. I took on a demo. 
you know, Operation Damocles was a great box set. I, I was totally enamored by pre-painted because, oh my gosh, I can get something and it's assembled and it's painted and, and <laughs> it's not that much more than a GW product. Awesome. Um, so I I really like this game. Uh, unfortunately, I started playing in 2008, which um, for those of you who don't know, Rackham did not uh, last much longer than 2008. So, yeah. uh, um, but uh it, it was it was a really interesting game. And Chris and I have made a couple of allusions to it. And I'm also really happy of Greg to because he's kind of perfectly situated to talk about it. But uh, I do think there's a lot of similarities between AT43 and Dust in terms of, um, you know, like the types of units you expect to see. So, you know, something like Steel Guard from Dust had a similar unit type in AT43. Um, mm-hmm. And they were still infantry. But they might have a slightly higher protection value than, say, bog standard infantry. But otherwise, you know, in terms of the core rules, they behaved uh, very, very, very similar. So, mm-hmm. you know, much like Dust, this was a game that was easy to learn, hard to master. I think, to my mind, probably a few more moving parts than Dust, just in terms of like the authority role and all that. But you know, still very easy to pick up and just play. Yeah, the, the 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 fact that it looks it looks like so much is explained by one thing: is that eighty forty three was supposed to be dust. Uh, <laughs> so when when Paolo Parente uh, joined Rackham, he came with dust that he had already created before and offered it to Rackham, and Rackham wanted a, a futuristic game, so they bought the license for dust basically. Huh. but there was a there was a. Um, Basically, at that time, they really didn't want to deal with the whole weird World War II. Okay. Uh, and they were really looking for a futuristic, uh, hard sci-fi game uh, to, to basically compete with uh, Warhammer 40k. And, and so Dust mutated into AT43 progressively with the, with the, the huge work of the, of the writer's team. Uh, because really, they basically were in charge of turning a, a, a diesel punk World War II, weird World War II game into a hardcore sci-fi uh, game. So some designs are also close because obviously uh, there was already a huge work uh, done by Paolo on designing his units, and mm-hmm. so he reused some some of the some of the design, but he changed it uh, obviously to remove all the diesel punk that was still on his designs. But and to make it more sci-fi, so yeah, it's really it's that's the reason why they look alike so much. It's because really, genuinely, that was meant to be dust. So that's that's the funny story. And when Rackham died the first time, because they they were reborn and then died again. But when Rackham died the first time, uh, Paolo uh, obviously left the company and founded Dust. Uh, and at that time, it was Dust Game, uh, a, a company with a, with his Chinese partner. Olivier, the writer of The Rules of Dust, uh, and two other people. And they basically made Dust uh, the way Paolo really wanted it. So even simpler, more fluid, uh, and playing without a tape measure, because at that time he really wanted something that would play uh, easier without having to measure, without having to... Limitations that we already mentioned in a, in a previous podcast. So, yes. So so yeah, that was that's the reason why they really look so close to each other. It's because they... Genuinely, the same. Right on. Well, um, I'm I'm going to set this up just with some background for people that are totally unfamiliar with AT43 or for Rackham. So, uh, Rackham is really really important company in the history of war games. And if you take nothing away from this podcast, 
I would say just understand that Rackham and extremely high quality art and models are probably synonymous. Now, please don't flame me and start posting a bunch of the uh, pre-painted plastic confrontation models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we all know those, those are not, uh, <laughs> not, not the best. But, uh, oh, God. Uh, yeah, I, I think AT43 and definitely the, the original version of Confrontation had some of the strongest models and some of the strongest art behind it of uh, miniature games for a long, long time to come. And I, I would say, if nothing else, definitely check out some of the AT43 models. If you heard pre-painted models and your mind went to hero clicks, you, you, you're wrong. To my mind, these are the best pre-painted models from like a mass-produced pre-painted perspective I've ever seen. I think maybe X-Wing gives them a run for their money, but that's a big maybe. The, the, these were seriously impressive. Um, but we like to talk about our favorite models from the line. So, Greg, what would you say your favorite model was from the, uh, the AT-43 line? I have two. One is the Fire Toad for the, for the UNA. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a walker with uh, two weapons uh, located on the bottom of the, of the chassis between the legs. And it really looks like it's called the Fire Toad because really when, the, when it was first created, the older guys at Rackham called it a toad. Uh, <laughs> and, and fire because fire industry is the, the giant corporation that makes all the weaponry for the United Nations of Ava. So Fire Toad became something obvious for them. And it's really a, a fun walker to to look at. You can imagine that is more like wobbling around than walking, due to the size of the legs compared to the body, the way they are placed. So it it, it has this quirky, funny little aspect. And in game, it's absolutely destructive. So so you make fun of it for five minutes, and then you start sweating because you have to wonder how you're going to destroy that as fast as possible, especially when you have entire platoons of it. Uh, where you have units of three fire toads and you can play like three or four units of it, it became it becomes very very uh, disturbing. So yeah, it's, it has always been a and plus detail that no one knows because this this is the kind of crazy details. But if you manage to open to pry open the cockpit, there's actually a genuine sculpt of the entire cockpit in it. Yeah, no, I I remember actually doing that and being totally amazed. Yeah. Um, and one thing for people that, that don't know AT-43 that, that might kind of surprise people is the Fire Toad had a number of different weapons loadouts. Each were given their own profile. When you bought a Fire Toad box, you got modular weapons that you could take off the model and plug in new fully painted weapon options. Co- correct. And my second favorite miniature is Mentor Freezer. Uh, so it's a common character that is really in a very dynamic pose. He's basically bouncing, leaping, I should say, uh, uh, using his fist basically on the ground to, to, to jump forward. The, the miniature is kind of malleing by players because they think that the profile is not good. It's actually a, a very different way to play, and Carmen was very different to play. So. A lot of people didn't understand how the army was really functioning until they faced it and and got wrecked. But <laughs> but really, it, it was very uh, it, the game was not relying on gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the army of Carmen was so different in terms of gameplay that when it first released, people were just expecting a, you know a high firepower, low low HP unit, uh, and that's all. And they didn't understand that there were so many other other strategies to it. So. And Mentor Freezer is really that because it's a character that is very good in terms of leadership. So for your leadership points, it's amazing to have it, even though it's very cheap. 
And at the same time, he has these gloves that basically destroy vehicles in melee. Uh, so he's not really good uh, against infantry. I mean, he's, he's going to cause some damages, but it's really not his prime directive. But really against vehicles and whatever the size of the vehicle, he's going to punch massive holes. Uh, and that's really entertaining when it happens on the table, basically. <laughs> so especially as melee was very different in 8043 for that time because you were basically punching, but there was no retaliation. So you were really genuinely punching hard without save or anything. So it was really very destructive, very fast. Obviously, you had to reach melee, so it was yep. high risk, high reward, but it was really fun. Chris, how about you? What are some of your favorite models? So uh, I'm actually going to have to go with uh, an entire class of troops, <laughs> which is uh, basically if, if you look at the uh, the Carmens, um, they have an entire three-star infantry that all have the prefix of K. Um, so mm. Shooters, K burners, K warriors, and K fighters. And just check out the models because the poses on them are awesome. What I really like is that it's more of an animalistic pose than some of the more kind of advanced, more human like poses of the standard infantry. And they're basically hunched over on all fours and they have the uh, big weapon emplacements basically just on a shoulder harness so it it's a very unique very cool looking troop and um usually you can pick the leader out by the one who's smoking the cigar which is <laughs> because um before i saw it it was definitely not something i knew i wanted <laughs> but the <laughs> art i was like uh i i guess i need it <laughs> like <laughs> I didn't really know I wanted to have or, you know, but like, it just, it's really cool. And again, you know, just looking at the quality of the pre-paints on it, um, I was anticipating, honestly, I was like, oh, I'm going to go in and like touch it up or do this or do that. Like even the details, whether it be like some of the weathering that already exists on the armor for the models, the little bit of texturing they put into the fur, the fact that the cigar is actually lit, like I, it's it's really impressive. I I only added bases or basing to mine. Very nice, very nice one though. Yeah, um, the, the if if I could run an army that was nothing but K whatevers, I would a hundred percent do it. Um, but. <laughs> I spent a long time kind of banging ideas around with people who knew more than I. It's like, what about if I try this? It's like, no, that's really not going to work. But what about if I do this other thing? No, that's like, that is that is absolutely not going to work. <laughs> so uh, I, I did eventually come up with a list that uh, involved a few other pieces. I'm definitely excited to get a lot of those, uh, the K insert noun here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for, uh, for listeners that have never seen these, We'll put some pictures of everything, all the models we talk about in the show notes. But uh, if you're familiar with GW games, imagine a Tyranid Pyrofex. But instead of being a giant Tyranid, it's a appropriately scaled monkey in power armor with a giant artillery gun on its back. That's that's your K chassis. With cigars. With yes. cigars. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, uh, I would say... Some of my favorites were the UNA Death Dealer Attack Arms. They were previewed in a uh, Rackham magazine called Cry Havoc. I really loved the art design on these. They were, to some extent, just a paint variant of an existing unit with slightly different guns. But they had this really interesting unit uh, motif, which was a 
Ace of Spades that turned into a skull at the bottom, and I just I really fell in love with the art direction, the actual fluff behind the unit. They just were big gnarly bad people in power armor with chain guns that were gonna murder you. And uh, in game, <laughs> they, they they did that. They did that real good. Oh yeah, they're the best at it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in terms of. Uh, after that, I, I've got kind of two, and one's a joke, and, and right, I, both are honestly kind of jokey, but there, there's some truth to both of them. One is the shipping containers from Operation Damocles. These started the shipping container wars for who could make the best shipping container for tabletop war game scatter terrain. <laughs> they were incredible, and I've seen a million imitators since, and they are fantastic. I love me some shipping containers for uh, sci-fi and post-apocalyptic war game. I, you know, Bless Rackham for doing these. The other would have to be the Nina Zero model that came out. I think it was initially previewed in the Operation Frostbite uh-huh. book. Um, she came out in, in that kind of stack of releases. She was a red block character that got turned into a Therian and had kind of a funky... The best I can describe it is kind of like Eddie Van Halen's guitar scheme on a model. It was really incredible to see. It, it, it was wild. I would not want to try to personally paint that on... Uh, unit or an army, but to have a pre-painted model that had that on it, it was it was really really cool. I agree. So, Greg, while we have you, wanted to kind of talk a little bit about some of the stuff that happened around AT43. So, you, you were at Rackham proper the whole time. Do you have any good like AT43 stories from your time in the office? Uh, uh, a bazillion of them. The whole AT43 story basically is uh, is very basically it sums up Rackham in one game. Uh, it's super high quality, it's innovative design, it's good pricing for something that is very, very exceptional when it comes to quality of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's messy. It's a, it's a story of people basically sweating and bleeding nonstop for several weeks to have a product that could probably have been done better at the beginning. And it's a story of waste of money, basically. Mm-hmm. So. So it's really, AT43 for me is an excellent memory. My best game memories are with this game. Uh, I've made friends for life thanks to thanks to Rackham. Uh, but at the same time, it's bittersweet because really this company, was, that company was really, 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 really managed like, like, like it shouldn't have been. Yeah. So, so it was it was really weird. But among the fun stuff, for example, uh, the characters in the game were m- most of them were based on uh, employees of Rackham or their parents. So, for example, uh, Odin and Manon, mm-hmm. uh, the two twins, uh, the two twin kids that are uh, SSU. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I said SSU. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> that are actually red block pilots are actually the names. Uh, and the lookalike of the kids of the at that time, the production manager of Rackham, uh, Raphael Guiton, who is now more famous for being one of the creators of Zombicide. Mm. So uh, that's that's an example. The Sergeant uh, Albert, for example, a famous UNA character, the, one of the first ones that we released actually, uh, with his with his actually uh, his uh, fire toad called Bad Dog. Uh, was actually the managing director of Rackham, uh, Albors Sabunchian, that was infamous in the company for being able to yell at everyone super loud all the time. 
and so that's the reason why the the whole fluff of of Sergeant Albors is that he's yelling at everyone all the time. Um, so so there there was a um, multiple stories like that about the characters uh, that were all inspired by someone that existed. Uh, basically around the writers of, of the game. Uh, what can I tell you also is that uh, when we went to Gen Con in 2007 with the game, actually Origins in 2007, I demoed the game 10 minutes to my demo guys the night before. They loved the game. Uh, they demoed the game all weekend long. And we told them, we you come back for Gen Con. And they were like, yes, definitely. And when they came back, they actually made a 3D table of the, of the map. Nice. Uh, and the it was really a labor of love. And we demoed the game on the 3D table during the whole weekend at Gen Con. It was a huge success. Uh, it was really, I mean, it was a massive success. We had a, a line at a point, and it was really not fashionable at that time uh, at Gen Con to have this kind of line. But we had a line that was going down several aisles down and uh, to the point that the Gen Con security came and was uh, trying to manage the line so that people could still walk around uh, because really we had so many people lining up to buy the game or to demo the game that we uh, we were completely overwhelmed during the whole weekend uh, to the point that on Sunday, uh, when people were starting to tear down their booth, we were still selling and the Gen Con security came again and said, no, now you have to leave. And we were like, no, 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 but it's okay. They're part of our staff. And we were basically trying to give them our badges so that they wouldn't have to leave because they would have an exhibitor badge so that they could continue buying after the show. So it, it was insane, like insane. Uh, it was really, really, really funny. We had demo guys from the booth around us uh, coming with the freebies that they got from the booth they were working on and trying to trade for 8043. So my demo guys were like, at first they were like, oh yeah, we could we could do trading. And then at the end of the weekend, they didn't even want to trade anymore because they were like, you know what? I don't care about your game. I prefer AT43. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it's uh, that same show. We came with uh, seven pallets of products, all mm -hmm. properly marked. And uh, it, one of the marking was, please do not pile up mm -hmm. the pallets. So obviously the, the, the convention center chose to pile them up. <laughs> so out of the out of the seven, we were able to sell exactly five. Two of them were completely wasted, and we're talking and we're talking four by four by eight pallets. So it, it was like something like fifteen thousand dollars worth of products that were completely destroyed. Wow! So so we actually gave gave these products away to everyone who wanted some freebies. So. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, because really, but we gave a, a massive amount of products because really, <laughs> even the demo guys at the point, they were like, no, I'm good. I already have eight units of this one. I, I don't need any more. I think I'm good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll actually, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So do, do you want to give like a real quick and dirty overview of like Rackham kind of from start to finish for new listeners? Yeah. So Rackham is a company that was created by Jean B uh, with uh, uh, three or four partners at that time. Some of them stayed all along. Some of them left uh, during, the, during the, the evolution of the company. Um, Jean B was uh, the former sales manager of Games Workshop for France. Hmm. Uh, he was actually excellent at that job to the point that he had a, a European record of sales for years uh, that they didn't manage to beat uh, until very recently and this kind of things. Okay. Uh, 
so they decided to do this game because he was he wanted better miniatures mm-hmm. and he wanted a game that was self-contained. So he created confrontation with a, a couple of guys, including uh, Olivier Zamfirescu, uh, Oz, <laughs> that uh, created Dust. Uh, and they made a game of which the main original point was that everything was in the blister. So you had the miniature, but you also had the card for the miniature. So the rules were already in it. You didn't have to buy a book. And it's better than that. The rule book was in the blister. So you had a, a tiny, tiny rule book uh, that was like 20 pages long that gave you all the rules you needed for that miniature. So if it was a fighter, you would have the generic rules of the game. If it was a mage, you would have the incantation rules, which was really the rules for magic. And then if, if it was a priest, you had the, the divination rules that were the rules for the priest and all the zealots and stuff like that. So everything was in your blister. So you would buy two miniatures and you were ready to play right away or after putting together the miniatures, which was not the easiest thing to do with Rackham products. But really, it was the, the principle was there. And that was the genius stroke, basically, of the whole game. That's what mm-hmm. made it so successful, first in oh. France, then in Europe. And then uh, when it arrived in the US with the Confrontation 3, it made a, quite, a, quite some noise, basically. Yes. So, um, uh, so that's really that, that built the success of Rackham. That grew super fast, obviously a little bit too fast. And some waste, some waste happened uh, along the line. So there was a first restructuration of the of the company, uh, mm-hmm. and then with the new team that that was there, that was still very massive, uh, they started creating um, other games around confrontation. So it started with a hybrid, which was a, a dungeon crawler for two players. Uh, then you had Cadwallon, which was the the RPG. Mm-hmm. So same thing uh, in the story of Wastes, for example, Cadwallon is a 400-page is uh, book uh, for, for an RPG. So it's massive, full color. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Yes. But each and every page has a different layout background. Yep. <laughs> so that's, 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 the, part, that's the, the part where really we were going into insanity with this company. So, so that that was one of the fun stories, but yeah, Rackham was that, and then they started to go into pre-painted plastic, because there was the ability to do plastic and the ability to do pre-painted, and really we wanted a game at that point. We felt that the market was ready for a game that was ready to play, mm-hmm. uh, and so AT43 was created like that, and the success was so massive. At, the, at a point where confrontation was actually stagnating and even a little bit dropping, depending on the markets, yep. that the decision was made to actually make confrontation in pre-painted plastic. Uh, sadly, it's very easy at that time to do uh, mechanical parts in plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's harder to make, uh, how can I say that? Organic shapes. Oh, thank you. Organic shapes are way more complicated with a soft plastic. Uh, at that time again, because uh, it was like uh, 15 years ago, so it has progressed quite a bit since then. Uh, but yeah, so confrontation in plastic was very not good looking at first. But that was really uh, the idea to make the games ready to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where 2007, end of 2007, uh, Rackham goes on chapter 11. Uh, for various reasons that go from uh, mismanagement to maybe a little bit of fraud, um, but but nothing official. <laughs> so yeah, so the the company dies 
the the assets are sold to a company uh, that is a, an asset management company, mm -hmm. uh, and they decide to recreate Rackham uh, and call it Rackham Entertainment, uh, yep. based on the fact that this pre-painted plastic is so successful that actually there's a potential market beyond the hobby market. Okay. Uh, and they want to create games that are not only uh, hobby games, like Games Workshop does, but also games that can go in Target, in Walmart, in these kind of big box stores. Mm -hmm. uh, very accessible, very fun, very fast, uh, one-shot games, you know. So they basically read the market properly because that, this is where the market is going at that time. So they start doing these kind of things. They, that, this is the moment where Rackham releases actually the Oni and the Cox. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's actually pretty good. And the army boxes, which are... I mean, the starter set for, for Damocles was fantastic, the initi initiation set. But the army boxes push it to 11. You have an yep. amount of... You have a content in it that is insane, a value that is insane, and you pay $70. And it's really... I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, at that time... Uh, you have uh, uh, meetings that happen uh, at the at the HQ of of Games Workshop, uh, wondering if they shouldn't make pre-painted plastic. <laughs> okay. You have uh, scouts from the company that are actually going to China to ask for quotations. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. No, no, really, it was uh, it was really, really, uh, really important at that time. So, so really, it's it's really funny. So, Rackham Entertainment uh, starts doing these kind of things. Uh, works quietly and then suddenly the 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 business behind Rackham Entertainment goes on chapter 11 also uh, and completely by surprise against for again for fraud uh, and so basically Rackham Entertainment had to shut down right away like they they uh, went from we have a ton of money to we have nothing <sighs> so they so all the employees have to go away again and stuff like that so that ended the the adventure of Rackham once and for all because really even the employees didn't want to to grab the assets anymore. The assets are sold to Signet Studio, which is a video game company that will make some video games out of Confrontation. Will never do anything out of eighty forty three, sadly. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, it's it's really the end of Rackham. So the funny thing is that it's the end of Rackham, but all the employees are now everywhere where everywhere successful basically so uh, as i said uh, former employees uh, actually the, the two of the writers and uh, rafael guiton the production manager uh, became uh, guillotine games and created zombicide so i mean life is good for them now uh, <laughs> you have uh, other employees uh, you were mentioning eden for example uh, the creator the creators of eden where one of them was working uh, at the sculpting department uh, so uh, Mo yeah. and uh, and uh, the other two writers of the rules were actually uh, uh, volunteers for Rackham in France, and oh. so that and they were all three of them were a huge fan of AT43, and that explains <laughs> why some mechanisms were found also in Eden because really a lot of people were orphans basically when AT43 died. Yeah, um, especially in 2007 uh, when AT when AT43 really. Uh, gets out as you've mentioned war machine is still at the v1 of the game and it's at the end of the v1 so it's it's very clunky very heavy uh, yep. so the game is really not user friendly it's it's a fun game but it's really really like heavy uh, mm -hmm. games workshop has uh, warmer 40k v4 v5 at that point uh, so it's so it's 
absolutely horrible. Uh, it's super heavy. Uh, it's it's absolutely not accessible to young players. It costs a fortune to play it because uh, you need so many miniatures, and at that point, the range is not that great. So it's mm -hmm. really, I mean, you if you play some armies, you really buy just 60 times the same box, and you play that same box again and again because you really have no choice. So, so yeah, the, the market is very weird. Uh, most of the games are not uh, in uh, simultaneous play. They mm -hmm. are played turn by, uh, uh, I, I go, you go. And so suddenly you have a game that comes and says, I'm a mass game and I'm going to be played in alternative, uh, alternate activations. So that's, yep. that's really, really brand new at that time. It's the beginning of the suppression of the needed to measure ranges and stuff like that. So there's that, even though it's, Still a little shy with 8043 because there again it's part of the hesitations during the creation of the game. So yeah, you have plenty of, of ideas like that. Yeah. If you want a very sad story, for example, about 8043, the the first UNA uh, white stars that are released, so the first infantries, uh, are actually so modular that they are built out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten pieces, uh, which makes them extremely expensive to make. Ah. Uh, because they normally, at a, uh, at a point during the conception of the game, they want to make all the infantry modular also. Mm. And so you could switch the weapons, but you could switch the heads, you could switch the, the backpack. I mean, you could switch a ton of things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. The armor, the body the body armor could be, could be switched. So there were really a ton of ideas like that, but that made them so expensive to make that when it was time to release the uh, the other infantry uh, that was supposed to be released, which was the the lighter infantry, there was actually no funds left to make the molds because the molds cost a fortune at that point. Yep. And so that's the reason why the two infantries, uh, one star and two stars of the UNA, have the same armor. Huh. It's because they had to reuse the same molds in order to make it profitable. So the UNA started being profitable way down the line in the creation of the army. Huh. So, and that's part of the mistakes that will probably cost the life of the company. Uh, that's uh, it's unfortunate to hear. I'm, I'm actually a little bit curious about you, man. So do, were you playing war games before you joined Rackham? Or is that your foray into that? Oh no no! Uh, I started in 1995 because my 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 table my yeah my table neighbor uh, in law school was reading a Tyranid Codex for V2 of okay. and I love the colors in it. I really love the colors. I I'm a huge fan of colors on miniatures. I don't like the the whole Fifty Shades of Brown or gray or stuff like that. I really like very bright colors everywhere. So we were actually uh, talking about it, and he started bringing me. The, the codices uh, one after the other and I fell in love with the Eldars and I started the game like that he bought me actually my first miniatures painted them for me creating a, a very bad habit and, uh, <laughs> and really it's it's how I started so I actually discovered Rackham because after a hiatus in my miniature adventure uh, I went back into it because my local shop, uh, I was working for a, a lawyer, basically, that had a, their office right in front of the local shop of my town. Mm -hmm. And the local shop was massive. So you have to understand that in France, we don't have these massive stores with a ton of tables and stuff like that. When you have one in your town, it's exceptional and you're super happy. Uh, so the, our stores are more the size of the one-man store from Games Workshop. Okay. Uh, okay, so it's really, really complicated to have a magnificent store. 
and mm-hmm. in that uh, at that time in front of my office the, you have this store that genuinely has 18 tables for Warner or Warner 40k whoa it's, okay. uh, so it's it's insanely big like really it's it's massive you have miniatures all all across the room on uh, all uh, all, all against the walls. All the walls are covered with miniatures, so you can really discover a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we start talking with the guys there. I play Warhammer 40k because I, I had my army, and I have these guys that uh, start talking talking to me about uh, confrontation. And at first, I'm like, "No, your game sucks, and and the, and the miniatures are ugly, uh, and they are expensive, and I really don't want to start a new game. I'm just playing that. I'm just playing 40k because." I'm lazy, basically, but I want to, to, to push some miniatures and go pew-pew, so that's perfect for me. And, of course, one of them becomes a friend of mine, and we start talking. He invites me to his house, and he has an entire collections of confrontation, and he tells me, choose one. And he genuinely gave me the entire Griffin army Whoa. that was released at that time. So everything, one of each. So, it, yeah, it was, it was amazing. So, obviously, first, free, first fix for free. Uh, I get. I start to play massively the game. Discover that it's actually pretty entertaining. Uh, still very clunky, uh, lots of bugs and stuff like that. But I don't care because really I'm not a power gamer deep inside. So so I really don't care. Uh, we push miniatures uh, entire nights. We play five people around the table. The game lasts six hours. It doesn't matter. We play a six six hundred points games. I mean, it's a, it's a game that is supposed to to be played at two hundred, three hundred. And we play 600 on each side. So you have five people at 600 points each. So it's like, I mean, really, the game lasts forever. Uh, it doesn't matter. We, we talk, we have fun, and that's good. And then I became more and more involved. And I started actually uh, organizing events for the game. And these events were pretty successful. Uh, at a point, we had uh, 60 people on each tournament every time we were organizing one. Uh, and in France, the tournaments last two days because we have Saturdays and Sundays that are not worked by most people so we can organize tournaments on two days so yeah and, and we started like that and basically one time i become a demo a demo guy for them mm-hmm. on a french show uh, for hybrid because hybrid is a magnificent uh, dungeon crawler that i really like and i'm like okay i'm demoing the game and the, the show was lasting a whole week and i demoed the game uh, 10 hours a day for a whole week and oh. and i was selling so much of hybrid uh, that at a point the the manager of the company Jean Bay, uh asked who I was basically and how I was doing that because really I was selling a boatload of this game and that was not supposed to be the bestseller of those of the show but it became the bestseller of the show so they were really intrigued uh, so and the guy that was actually most of the time with me uh, during my shifts was actually the manager of the sales uh, of the mail order service who became a friend and mm-hmm. when he contacted me at Christmas the year after, telling me, um, I have my assistant that is going away forever. So I need someone to replace her. Are you available? And I was, at that time, I was unemployed because I, I had a previous job that was paying extremely well. So when I left it, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go on a sabbatical for half a year. Nice. And, and actually, I was like, yeah, you know what? Why not? I'm, I'm here anyway, so why not? So mm-hmm. I started working like that for Christmas, and then I stayed uh, for a couple of years. <laughs> right on. So. Uh, getting back to AT43, uh, mm-hmm. do you know where the storyline was headed? So we, we had the cogs come in. There was some interaction with some factions. Oni, kind of same deal. 
Any idea where, where that was, was all leading up to? So um, there was an operation that was released, Operation Frostbite, that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there were supposed to be two or three more operations like that on, on various uh, theaters of war. Okay. And then, normally, the idea was that uh, uh, Damocles, the, the factory planet of the Therians, would have been invaded and destroyed. Okay. Uh, but at that point, the Therians would have been installed in various planets around the, the colonies of Eva, and so the, the conflict would have moved to these planets. Mm. Because while they were destroying the, the, the factory planet, basically the Therians were recreating one by terraforming uh, another planet that everyone forgot about and <laughs> doing it again. Because that's, what, that's genuinely what Therians do. Uh, if you read the, the book for the Therians, uh, that is available for free if you look a little bit uh, online. Uh, the, at a point, they explain that basically when they have debates about what they should do, the debates are, last forever for Therians, for Therians' mind, because they last some nanoseconds. <laughs> so, they can, so they process an amount of decisions by second that is just inhuman, genuinely inhuman. And so they can genuinely anticipate stuff and start creating other stuff while you're fighting them on the left. They're already terraforming three other planets on the right. So it looks like a losing battle, uh, but that's the, that's the magic of it. Uh, there are also uh, ways to slow down the theorems. In terms of AT-43's rules, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the art is uh, very similar to Dust because of uh, Apollo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rules are a bit different. Uh, for someone that's a fan of Dust and is hearing about AT-43 for the first time and maybe getting really excited about the setting, is there like a like really quick overview on how you compare and contrast the, the two different rule systems? Uh, first, uh, there's one main difference is that AT-43 still needs a tape measure. Okay. Uh, that's that's a, the, the main difference between the two systems. Dust will not even need the, the, the universal table of resolution because everything is written on the card. The number of dice you roll and the no, number of damage that you cause. Whatever mm-hmm. is in front of you, as long as it has this level of armor and this type of, of unit, you know exactly what you're rolling. Uh, AT43 has a little bit more back and forth on the on the reading of the card. You have to read your card, read your opponent card, and know exactly what's happening. One major flaw, in my opinion, of AT43, in all honesty, is the secret measuring. Mm, uh, yep. You cannot measure before declaring your action, and that is genuinely an antiquated design artifact, basically, that was popular at that time, uh, that is completely outdated now. Mm. Uh, it's honestly it's completely useless in terms of game because again it's the only element of gacha uh, that you can have in the game and it's not necessary uh, mm. measuring before doesn't change anything to the gameplay doesn't change anything to your strategy so so really that is the one thing that really it's something that could be changed very easily but yeah the, in terms of 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 differences yeah the AT43 is going to be a little crunchier because you have the leadership point management that is a little bit trickier. Once you know the mechanism and what you want to do, it's easy. But at first, uh, when you have to explain it to someone, basically, it's going to take you 10 minutes more. Mm. Uh, so it's not it's not nothing when you have a demo that lasts 30 minutes, you know. To have 10 <laughs> minutes explained just on one aspect of the game, that means that the, definitely this aspect is a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's where the difference lies, basically. But apart from that, 
you're going to have a very fast-paced, super lethal game. So on that, you're very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have um, an immersion created by the scenarios because the scenarios are never uh, destroy everything on the table. Uh, it's actually never the same deployment. It's actually never the same uh, type of scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very it's another another game where it's very important to play a scenario or it gets boring very fast. Yeah. Uh, so you have multiple scenarios uh, in the various books, in the campaigns, and of course uh, online they created some some so people got them and saved the PDFs everywhere so you can find them super easily. Uh, but in the Cry Havocs, they had scenarios that were created. I actually wrote like two of them. Oh, um, nice. Because really, I really loved the game. So I was really into it. I remember when we were leaving work late in the evening uh, with the community manager of the company, uh, Martin, which was my, which, who is my best friend, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were leaving the, the company and we were stopping to the lo local game store that was on the same subway uh, line. And we would play until midnight or 1 a.m., uh, 8043 there. So, <laughs> really, we're really into the game. It's, it's really my favorite game of all time because it was the first game that really genuinely allowed me to play extravagantly miniatures that were pretty insane, but at mm -hmm. the same time, very relaxed. And yeah. that's and, and anywhere, because really you could unfold the mat that was given in the box. It was a paper mat that was double-sided. You put two side by side, you had a complete table, and you were just playing like that, and it was done. So uh, you had the containers and the, the bunkers, the walls, the, everything was basically given in the various boxes of the units, all these kind of things. So really, you would bring your starter set filled with the miniatures and unload the miniatures uh, randomly on the table, and you were ready to go. So <laughs> on uh, on that note, you know, I think there's been at least two that I know of, probably more efforts to uh, bring back confrontation. Do you, do you think there is any interest or will there be any interest in bringing back AT43? Um, it's a very, uh, very complicated question. And in my opinion, verges on the side of conspiracy theory. <laughs> so, <laughs> because really, I, I don't have any other explanation at the point. I, I've tried uh, actually uh, two times to, to get the license for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Two times that I received no answer. I know that multiple people tried also to to do that without any answer from Cyanide. Uh, oh. I know that confrontation was licensed several times, uh, including for Kulmi, uh, for Kulmini or not, mm -hmm. before they became Simon yeah, yeah. Uh, and this big company. They had actually a, a range of resin miniatures that were basically old sculpts from Rackham that they released as uh, Legacy or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, that didn't mean to be played in the game, even though they had a profile card, I think, but, but they were really just meant to, to be these beautiful sculpts, basically. So there were licenses that were given for confrontation. They obviously made a video games out of it, but mm -hmm. 8043 is buried so deep that really, I mean, it, it, it's the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Indiana Jones. <laughs> it's, it, it's really it, it has no no reason why it should be buried like that uh, it's so buried that actually the chinese factory that had the mold started destroying the molds because no one wanted them so they reused the metal uh, i I'm, I'm very comfortable saying that because the factory that built 8043 is the factory that makes dust 
there you go. Okay, so so really, it's it, they started just destroying the molds because yeah, you know what, we're going to recycle the metal, and no one wants anything with this game. So really, I mean, I have no no valid explanation why uh, this thing is never going out because there were there was a demand for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's quite a bit of content for it because the the universe bible was nicely built. Uh, obviously, there were there were a lot of drawings and stuff like that by Paolo, but also by uh, Karl Kopinski, uh, Paul Bonner, uh, and and uh, even Edouard Guitton worked a little bit on it. So really, there's there is a potential up until three, four, five years after the death of Rackham Entertainment, there was still a demand for it. Uh, I think that right now the the game would need to to be modified uh, quite extensively again to to answer a demand that has changed, that has evolved with time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the universe is still valid uh, and you could do a lot of products with it. Yeah, definitely. I could definitely see it uh, being something that would be very interesting to see as a modified version of the Dust Rule set. But uh, sounds like that's, that, that would be a hard road to, uh, to bring to life. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's not. Uh, it, I mean, yeah, you would need several several millions of dollars to to bring to bring it back properly. Well, I'll start looking for a pocket change in my couch and uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Moving a little bit along from AT forty three, um, do you have a favorite uh, miniature painter that's out there right now? Oh yeah, Martin Grandbarbe. Martin is a former Rackham painter. Uh, actually, he was working for Rackham when he was like super young. Uh, because he was painting and he was so freaking talented that he finally hired him because really uh, but the guy is now working for he's the one who painted all the, the I should say the art box for uh, Batman uh, mm-hmm. Conan uh, all the monolith games all the mythic games are from him most no actually I'm mistaken mythic games now as other painters but the first ones I think were done by him uh, he painted for plenty of people, basically. Uh, he's incredibly talented. He has a, a whole array of techniques. Uh, he has a style, but he's not stuck into his bad habits. <laughs> um, so it's not always the same thing. He's painting super fast, and he's super nice. So, yeah, Martin Grandbarbe is definitely the, the best painter that I know. <laughs> what games are you playing nowadays? Uh, okay, so playing right now is a little bit complicated. Uh, up until recently, I was not vaccinated, so I was isolating super hard uh, because I'm a I'm at risk uh, with COVID mm-hmm. uh, due to health issues. But and some of my kids also are at risk, uh, mm-hmm. also due to health issues. So I collected a lot. I didn't play much, but we played D and D with the kids. That's cool. Because I basically introduced them to RPG with HeroQuest. Uh, because that's how I started when I was very, very young, actually. I said that I started in 1995, but actually, no, it's 1992 when a friend of mine invites me in his house and we play HeroQuest the whole afternoon instead of playing his fantastic uh, Super Nintendo uh, <laughs> they just got. So that was a, that was a sign. But but yeah, so uh, I introduced them to, to RPGs with HeroQuest and then we moved up to D&D 5 and they are really in love with it. Uh, so we play that every time we can. Um, and then I collect Legion because I fully intend to play the game. Again, I, st- I started the game uh, a little bit against my will, but basically when I read the rules uh, behind the, the very crunchy uh, card system that FFG loves, cards and tokens, 
uh, when you read the basic rules, it's actually very close to what 8043 is. Hmm. So the management of the line of sights, the management of how the units are composed and, and, uh, and how they are uh, built and how you manage them on the table, there's a lot of things that are very common to 8043. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so Legion is really something that tickles my fancy right now. I have my retirement project that is going to be the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so I say my retirement project because I have these massive armies for all factions of the game uh, mm. and basically I'm going to put them together, paint them and build giant dioramas probably play the scenarios of the books because actually uh, I think it's the best game from Games Workshop uh, yep. and really their scenarios their campaign books are most excellent they are really models of what campaign books should be so yeah, that's that's really. I, I've always loved the game. Uh, took me, I mean, fifteen years too long to get into it. But now I'm I'm very deep. I mean, I have three starter set boxes. I have like three Mumax, uh, and I have all the. I have six or seven of the old boxes uh, from the first edition of the game. I mean, I, I went deep. <laughs> nice. So yeah, that's that's what I play, and I fully intend to play eighty forty three. Uh, with whoever wants to play with me and uh, I will probably organize something during a convention like Adepticon uh, I think that at a point we will reorganize the Operation Frostbite uh, adapted obviously for the new factions also but mm -hmm. yeah it's my it's my plan 2022 nice awesome. one night oh. one night of 80-43 <laughs> I'll start clearing space in my bag yes <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> Awesome. Um, so speaking of uh, 2022, um, is there anything that you're looking forward to for the rest of 2021? Yes. Uh, first, my trip to France with my family, uh, because my mom is very sick uh, and I haven't been able to visit her uh, during the, the whole period where she was really, 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 really sick. Okay. So she got out of it a little bit right now. Uh, she has cancer, basically. So uh so i'm really looking forward to that uh i also want to show my kids the the country i grew in uh and especially the part of the country i i, I was raised uh which is the riviera so it's it's a beautiful part of france and i have a ton of stuff to show them so i really hope that borders are going to be i mean borders are open right now but i hope they don't close before we can organize the trip um, because it's going to be uh, quite memorable, I think. I'm also looking forward to Origins Game Fair. Origins has always been my favorite show uh, until Adepticon, because Adepticon is is like the mecca of miniatures. But mm -hmm. but uh, really, Origins has been the first show that I've been to in the US. It was in back in 2006 when I was working for Rackham. Uh, it was actually two months after I became their sales rep for America. They told me, oh, cool, you're going to meet the, the distributor there uh, during Origins. And boom. <laughs> so, but I loved, I, I really loved Columbus, uh, Ohio. Uh, I really loved the show. It was very human-sized. It's not like Gen Con that is this infernal machine of pressuring you uh, and making you dizzy with, uh, with overwhelming and overflow of information. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a very relaxed show where you can really genuinely play during the whole weekend, day and night. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that uh, because it's probably going to be the only show that we're going to do this year. And yeah, that's people being vaccinated. I'm looking forward to that also. 
2020 has been canceled. Most of 2021 will be canceled in the end. So the new normal needs to happen now. <laughs> Any, anything you want to give a shout out to, Greg? Um, shout out to my wife who has been holding the fort and working as a dental assistant during the whole pandemic, mm. uh, wearing a paper, which is a, this safety helmet, basically, with a, with a ventilation system integrated in it. Uh, to my kids, because they have been freaking champions holding uh, in isolation for a year and a half. I'm um, really glad that they are finally getting vaccinated. And then to, to the Bolter Club, uh, because they have done a job on the campaign that we are releasing for Dust that is, I mean, professional level. And they do it with a smile, laughing all the time, uh, testing and testing again. I mean, really, uh, it's not even their job and they are doing it like better than some professionals that I know. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice. Really, really nice. And to our patriots, the demo guys for Dust USA uh, that have continued to foster and, and take care of their communities. On that note, for our listeners who haven't found it yet, we do actually have just a fan Discord page set up right now. So definitely, like, pop on. Um, it's been very entertaining over the past couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> there's definitely been some surprises. Um, you know, sometimes I tune in after being at work all day, and I'm like, whoa, like, I, I have missed several important developments. <laughs> but uh, it's it's been pretty neat. It's definitely really cool to come together and see... Um, you know, how many people are into different games that we just didn't know before, you know, like before I've had so many people where, um, like they're just friends, like where I was like, Oh yeah, I know you from war machine. It's like, Oh man, like I I absolutely love Mercs. Like it's coming back. This time. Oh, okay. Like I, (laughs) I had no idea that you did anything other than play war machine. (laughs) Like, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really cool. Um, you know, it's fun. It's laid back. It is uh, drama-free, and we intend to keep it that way. Um... Awesome. Well, on that note, I'm Owen. I'm Chris. And I was Greg. Hopefully you still are, Greg. (laughs) Uh, We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Have a good night. Intro music is Axe to Mouth by Pulp 45, which is Owen's old band. Outro music is Control My Fate by Ataraxia, which is Chris's old band. All songs used with permission. If you like what you hear, please like or subscribe. Thanks. <laughs>